as you know, we're continuing in our uh, series on the Ten Commandments, What Does God Expect From Me? And Pastor Rex is going to be sharing tonight's message, but before he does, there's this video that I would love you to watch. What Does God Expect From Me? is a nine-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Wait, nine parts, Ten Commandments? What? Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God. You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. We will not live by your commandments. We're free. There is no freedom without the law. Did you carve those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. We wanted to find out whether people in our area could name all Ten Commandments. So we sent our lead pastors out into the community to get the answer. Shall not steal. Good. Okay. Um, that you shall have no other gods before me. That's a good one. Okay. Um, thy shall honor thy mother and thy father. Kids listen to that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, they shall not work on the Sabbath. Okay. Is that a commandment? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you okay. That one. <laughs> Say on another day, okay. And one more, you want? You oh, want. oh. Um, I did the, the stealing thing, not stealing. Oh, the coveting. There you go. That. There you okay, go. no coveting. You did good. Any commandments did Moses come down with? Seven. Right. No, any of those uh, commandments? Not a clue. <laughs> oh, welcome to worship today. You know, there's a humorous old story about. Moses uh, up on the mountain negotiating with God about the commandments. And he comes down to the people who are waiting anxiously below and he says, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I got him down to 10. The bad news, adultery still in, all right? You know, of all these commandments that we've been looking at as we've been exploring through the 10 commandments thus far, There are some of these commandments that are simply ignored by people. There are others that are ridiculed. But there are a lot of people who absolutely hate the commandment we're looking at this weekend. And the commandment simply says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And today we want to unpack that command just a bit. But why would God give us such a strong sex drive, this instinct for intimacy, and then give us these guidelines? Well, some believe he's a cosmic killjoy who just loves to watch us struggle and be frustrated. But nothing could be further from the truth. What I hope you'll learn this weekend is that This commandment is packed with wisdom because just like all the commandments, it has a provision for us, but also a protection from things that God is looking to protect us from. One of the reasons I'm so excited about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that it's all about flourishing. It's all about being the best we can possibly be, the way God truly designed us. And I, I just can't help but notice through the years that the more we follow God's design, the more we tend to flourish. 
But this commandment is also very needed. Let's make no mistake about that. According to some research from two researchers, Buss and Shackelford, that I consulted this week, According to the latest research, their estimate is that somewhere between 30 and 60% of all married individuals will be unfaithful to their mate at some time during their married life. I think those are actually conservative statistics. And it's not just out there in the society. This is in the church. This message is for the kid celebration worker. It's for the small group leader, for the ministry director. It's for the faithful attender and worshiper in the church because this is a practical issue that that affects all of us in one way or another. So let's jump in and look at it. First, I want you to see the provision part. I want you to see the purpose, the purpose behind marriage in the first place. What was it all about? And within this purpose, you're going to see how God was really providing for our needs. The first purpose I would mention is God designed marriage to be an intimate companionship. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to look now with me at this very familiar, you've probably heard it read at weddings or various places, marriage seminars. This is the foundation of marriage. This is what God originally said about it. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, when you read that, you get this sense that God had in mind here an intimate companionship, a relationship that would go deeper and more intimate than any other human relationship. But I would suggest to you that through the years in our society, marriage has become a bit trivialized. And it's been looked at in a rather flippant way. Elizabeth Taylor, who passed away some years ago, uh, was kind of notorious as being a person who had serial marriages. She had nine of them total, I think, by the time she was finished. And sometime when her eighth marriage ended, she was interviewed. In a very popular interview, and and this is what she said. She said, I kind of look at marriages like movie scripts. You go into it hoping it's a hit, 
but realizing that it may be a dud. And the attitude is, well, you win some, you lose some. And if I'm not totally happy with this, then hey, I'll just trade it in for a new one. But God's idea for marriage goes a lot deeper than that. He had a deeper purpose in mind. You remember the first, the original movie, Rocky? And uh, Rocky's talking to Pauly. Pauly in the movie is kind of this uh, insensitive goon of a guy. He works in a meat house and he's aspiring to become a, lo- a collector for a loan shark. And, 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 and Rocky's interested in, in Pauly's sister, Adrian. And Paulie, at one point, the meat house says, I just don't see it. I don't see it. What's the attraction? And Rocky says, fills gaps, I guess. (laughs) And Paulie says, what's gaps? And Rocky says, she got gaps. I got gaps. Together we fill them. Who knew he was such a profound theologian? (laughs) That is deep theology. No, God didn't have Rocky and Adrian in mind, I don't think, but that's complementarian theology. Look, we've got these needs, God says, and and before the the corny line from Jerry Maguire, God was basically saying, look, you're going to complete one another. You got these gaps. And the ideal of marriage is that there's going to be this intimate companionship that fills those gaps. Secondly, I would suggest another purpose of marriage is an opportunity for a sexual relationship. An opportunity for a sexual relationship. Now, I I would suggest that marriage, sex in a marriage is kind of like fire, in a home. Fire can warm the house up or fire out of control. Fire handled irresponsibly can burn the house down, right? And that's kind of the way sex is in the marriage relationship. And I would ask you today, all of you who are married, is your bedroom more like a playground or a battleground? Does it kind of reflect the idea of the fire kind of warming the house up, making the relationship wonderful, making it more cohesive, or does it represent a battleground which leads to a lot of pain, a lot of turmoil, and chaos is in the home? This passage from 1 Corinthians is one that I seldom hear read in a church anywhere, but I think it's important for us to look at. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. He's talking there about sexual intimacy. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. And catch this next part, married couples. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent And for a time, a limited period of time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then 
come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Wow. Now, please understand what that's saying. Normalcy in marriage, and there are many things that can frustrate this normalcy, I understand. But normalcy in marriage should see a husband and a wife coming together regularly in sexual intimacy. And, and Paul says there, the only thing that should be really an exception to that is when you mutually agree that for a spiritual purpose, we're going to abstain from that intimacy for a period of time. I, was, I got a kick out of seeing this article in USA Today some time back. It's called The Revenge of the Church Ladies. And the results it reports, I think, are intriguing. This story, and I can't read it all, of course, but it cites several major research studies that show that church ladies, that is, faithful attenders, in worship, and their husbands who sleep with them are among the most sexually satisfied people on the face of the earth. And it's, it goes into all kinds of uh, detail here. It alludes to a study done way back in the 1940s by Stanford University, a study done in the 1970s by Red Book Magazine of uh, over 100,000 people. It's a very large sample size, all in the United States. And then it talks about another study done in the late 1990s. Every one of them, and here's what's astounding, found the same thing. Spread decades apart, huge sample sizes. Every one of them found there are higher levels of sexual satisfaction among women who attend religious services regularly. And they cited four factors for this. Here they are, quickly. Number one was their lack of sexual experience prior to marriage that tended to make sex better within marriage. Another, they had a commitment to marital fidelity and marital permanence. It just wasn't some flippant one-night stand. Third was that sexual satisfaction is positively affected by the absence of sexual anxiety. And the fourth factor they cited they said that those ladies benefit from the belief that God himself is the creator of sex, which is absolutely correct. Sex is God's idea. And so God designed marriage for this purpose, that there would be a fulfilling, mutually fulfilling sexual experience within it. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. A third purpose of marriage I think we need to quickly consider as we're just laying the foundation for, for what it's really all about is that marriage is for procreation. Now for centuries, this is the only purpose of marriage that a lot of Christians were willing to acknowledge. It, it, just there to have babies, friends, just there to procreate. Well, that's obviously not the only reason, but it's a significant one. Look at what Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says. God blessed them and said to them, this is Adam and Eve now, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Did you catch those words? Be fruitful and increase in number. 
God created sex. He said, it's very good. He said, I want you to have godly offspring. And in my experience, that desire for most couples, for most couples, is so deeply rooted in their soul that that's one of the many reasons that infertility is such a dreadful thing to most couples. If they're unable, for whatever reason, to have children of their own biologically, many, many have found that sort of hole in their soul filled through adoption, and bringing children into their home that they can love and raise in a, in a godly way. But one of the key purposes for marriage was that we would raise children that would grow up to love God and obey him and reflect his character in the world. That's one of the ways that, that families bring honor and glory to God. And finally, number four, marriage is an illustration of Christ and his church. This is an important passage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul writes, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What is he saying? Marriage itself is to be sort of a picture, if you will, a reflection of the relationship that the Lord has with his people, the church. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that, that divorce is such a profound tragedy. It's one of the reasons that when Christian marriages don't work well, it is like a double tragedy because here's the deal. In addition to all the personal pain involved, it gives people the wrong idea about God and about the nature of his relationship with us. I hope you understand that. Marriage was designed so that children and, and, and unbelievers or anyone who's curious about this could look at that relationship and go, ah, so that's kind of reflection of God's love for us. Look, look how close they are. Wow, look, they're flourishing together. That's the way God wants to be with us. Wow, look at how they work through conflicts and challenges. That's what God wants to do for us as we work through challenges. Wow, they stick together, faithful and committed, even through ups and downs. Go figure. That's the way God is with us. He doesn't abandon us when we fail him and let him down. But when those things aren't happening in marriage, it gives a very poor idea to people of the nature of God's relationship with us. And by the way, friends, let me just add before we move on to the second part, that's one of the reasons we're so passionate at grace about seeing that marriages get off to a good start. From the very beginning, 21 years ago, we had a carefully thought through premarital process and we honor the integrity of that. Here's what that means. We're thrilled when young couples give us the privilege of participating in their wedding ceremony. With one of our pastors performing that, officiating that ceremony for it, we're thrilled when we can do that, okay? We love that. But as I kindly often remind people, that doesn't mean the church is in the wedding business. You can get a wedding just about anywhere. Weddings are easy. 
You get somebody to do you. You want a wedding? You can get a wedding easy. We're not in a wedding bit. We're not a wedding mill. And I lovingly remind couples, if you do desire us to officiate your service and to be a part of that, oh, we'd love to. But please understand, we're going to honor the integrity of that process and we're going to try to make sure that the whole process from beginning to end honors God. And that means there's some guidelines. That means there's some expectations. That means there'll be some premarital counseling involved. We want to prepare you as well as we can for this awesome thing God designed called marriage. But let's turn a corner now. We've looked at the provision that God provided for through his purpose. But now, let's talk for a minute about the protection of this commandment, no adultery. In other words, what do we protect our marriages from when we faithfully follow this commandment? What do we protect them from? Let's talk about that for, for just a little while. First of all, if we're faithful to the spirit of this, it's going to protect us from the complications that come through premarital sex. I was intrigued by the, an article from the Associated Press called Live-In Couples May Miss Out on Wedded Bliss. This is not Christianity Today, by the way. This is not Moody Monthly or some Christian magazine. This is just a secular report. It, it reported that the trend of couples living together, which has soared, it's over 10 times more than it was in 1960 in the United States. It's just becoming the thing to do. You know, want to test drive that car before you buy it, man. That's the, that's the mindset. But this article reported on a study that was funded by Rutgers University. And it was a secular agency that conducted it, and it said, and I quote, living together is not a good way to prepare for marriage or to avoid divorce, end quote. In fact, it goes on to say, according to 50 years of research, five decades, they've been doing this. Couples who live together before marriage are 48% more likely to divorce than those who don't. I was overwhelmed by this data, but it simply lines up with everything James Dobson said for several decades and all of the research he did. It went on to report, living together increases the risk of domestic violence for women. In fact, it's almost twice the rate for those who never live together. All facts that James Dobson discovered through his research through the years. So we want to try to protect people from the complications of that. The, the second protection is extramarital sex. And this, of course, is what we classically think of when we think of adultery. We think about an extramarital affair. Now, times have certainly changed and attitudes have changed since God first gave this command centuries ago to Moses and to the people of Israel. Look, look at how it was stated in the book of Leviticus centuries ago. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress Wow, must be put to death. Within the nation of Israel and this theocracy, this unique relationship they had with God, that was to be the penalty for someone who committed adultery, who broke this marriage vow, who was unfaithful in marriage. But times have, of course, changed and 
Obviously, as Christians under a new covenant, we're not bound to follow that kind of penalty. That would be bizarre in our day. The grass may look greener on the other side, friend, I want to tell you, but it is poison. It may look greener, but it's probably growing over a septic tank of some kind. The grass may look greener, but you don't have a clue, friend, the trouble you're about to get into and the tsunami of pain you're about to set in motion. I plead with you today. I'm being personal right now. I plead with you today. If you're flirting with an affair, you need to flee. You need to get out of there because it is not what you think it is going to be. God gave this command to protect us from that. We looked last time at this passage from 1 Corinthians. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who, you ha- who is in you, you have from, you receive from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But you know what I'm most concerned about this weekend as we address this important topic? And I know of no timelier topic than what we're talking about today. What I'm mostly concerned about is the root of all this. It's one thing to look at the act and talk about what the ancient penalty was and talk about all the trouble it sets in motion today. But but I think if we're wise, we ought to look at the root of this. And, And that's kind of the third thing that this commandment is designed to protect us from. And that is the whole issue of lust in the mind and heart. I like a definition that the leadership guru, John Maxwell, gave as a definition for lust. He wrote, lust is a thought or a feeling that I cherish and hold on to that if I did what I was thinking, if I did what I was thinking, it would clearly be sin. Now let's think about that for just a while. That's true, isn't it? And, you know, that is pervasive. And many of us may listen to all these stats I've been sharing this week and may go, well, thank God I'm not one of those stats. I've never been physically, sexually unfaithful to my mate, you may be able to say. But surely all of us have fallen on this one, right? I mean, right now, let's just be real. Can we be real in church today at all of our locations? Right now, if God were to come down in judgment, right now, And just strike dead every man and woman, every person that has ever had a sexually impure thought, that has ever lusted after someone in an improper kind of way. If God came down right now and began to just strike people dead, there'd be people dying all over this sanctuary, wouldn't there? I mean, they'd be dying in piles, young and old. It wouldn't matter. There'd be people just dying all over the place. If God came down in judgment, there'd be dead people all over the room. Everybody'd be dead. Now, I'd go on preaching. But (laughs) you don't believe that, do you? No, you shouldn't believe that. Because 
this gets all of us, just like Jesus did with murder last week. He said, let's get to the root of the problem. Let's just not deal with the fruit of it. Let's deal with the root of it. And that's exactly what he does with this command. Let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus said, gouge it out and throw it away. Be willing, in other words, to take drastic measures in order to address the root of this problem. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow. Jesus said, look, we need to deal with the root of this issue. A recent survey showed that 95% of men struggle with lust. 95%. The other 5% struggle with lying. You know, you know, you know that's true. Did you hear what happened at the St. Petersburg Zoo in Russia? Did you hear this? This is incredible. They were having trouble, the St. Petersburg Zoo, getting their male orangutans to mate frequently enough with the females. And so the zoologists and the animal behavioral scientists came up with a brilliant idea. They got TVs, televisions, TV monitors, and put them outside of every male orangutan's cage. All right? And they had on there movies of orangutans mating, thinking, I guess monkey see, monkey do, that this would stimulate the male orangutans to be more active sexually with the females. But you know what happened? And it's incredible. The male orangutans got obsessed with watching the televisions to the great frustration of the females. And they ignored their female orangutans. Imagine that. And that was just one channel. Imagine if they'd had a remote control. Everybody struggles with this issue. And that's why pornography is so rampant in this culture. Jesus said, we got to get to the root of this issue. It all begins with the heart and the mind of the individual. And I believe that both men and women struggle greatly with what you might call emotional adultery. This is not just a male problem, folks. Hear me. I'm aware of so many women who are having emotional affairs and while it may never cross over the physical line of adultery, it's an emotional adultery all the same. Barbara Rainey, the wife of Dennis Rainey, of Family Life, in her book, Moments Together for Couples, talked a little bit about this. Uh, she talked about when she was back in chemistry class in high school. Barbara writes, sometimes I would mix different things together and it would cause an explosion because I wouldn't realize the qualities within them were combustible. What I've learned since then is that many people don't respect the laws of chemistry any more than I did back then. They mix volatile ingredients without giving much thought to the explosion that could occur. 
In particular, married people, many married people, don't understand that a chemical reaction can occur with people other than their mates. I'm not just talking about sexual attraction. I'm referring to a reaction of two hearts, the chemistry of two souls. And this is emotional adultery, intimacy with the opposite sex outside the marriage. Emotional adultery is unfaithfulness of the heart. When two people begin talking of intimate struggles or doubts or feelings, they may be sharing their souls in a way that God intended exclusively for the marriage relationship. Emotional adultery is friendship with the opposite sex that has progressed too far. So what should you do? You're sitting here today and you're going, wow, this has happened in our relationship. And some of you are listening to me right now going, I'm living today with the pain, with the complication that it has been brought about by unfaithfulness, either on my part or the part of my spouse. And some of you are sitting there and you're feeling a little paranoid. And you're thinking, wow, how can I protect my relationship that as far as I know has not had this occur yet, but how, how can I protect it? What can I do to try to ensure going forward that we don't experience this kind of pain? Well, let me just talk to you from my heart for a few moments about this. I wanna suggest five action steps for protecting your marriage. And believe me, folks, if this hasn't happened to you, what we're talking about right now is very real. It's probably happened to someone on the row you're sitting in. I would suggest five things. There's so many others. But I, I just would suggest this as a starting point. First of all, determine that you are going to finish well with your spouse. Can I tell you something Debbie and I do on a regular basis? We dream together. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we have all the usual plans that we do with one another, try to keep life, you know, life going now and all the logistics of that. And, and like many of you, we feel stressed out much of the time. But can I tell you something we do regularly? We'll sit down and we'll talk about growing old together. We'll tease about that. Yeah, I'll be drooling one day and you'll be taking care of me or I'll be taking care of you while you drool and we'll... We talk about getting old together, and we laugh about it, and we have fun with it, but we're serious. We're just kind of painting a dream for each other. We're, we're kind of making a real goal that, hey, no matter what happens, we're going to be in this together. Do you know how motivating that is? Now, we both happen to be very goal-oriented people, so a goal is always a good motivator. But even if you're not very goal-oriented, when you get a picture of what the future can look like, a positive picture, it has an enormous power to draw you along, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So talk about that together. Dream together. Talk about what it's going to look like as you go into that sunset season of life. Secondly, I would suggest to you that you realize the power of your eyes. Job talked about this in Job 31, verse 1, when he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Job was acknowledging what all of us know, especially men, that 
the visual, what we put into the eye gate is enormously powerful, right? So be realistic about what kind of shows you should be watching and those you shouldn't. What kind of movies, what kind of internet sites you should go to and those you should avoid. Be realistic. Because what goes into the eye gate is incredibly powerful. Third, I would suggest that you extinguish chemical reactions that have already begun. In the Barbara Rainey quote, she talked about that chemistry of two souls. You remember that powerful phrase, phrase the chemistry of two souls? And, and you know what that's like. You, you talk to someone, you meet someone, and, and even though you're married, wow, you're, whew, you're, you're feeling this unusual connection to one another. Wow, it's just like, whoa, we're getting along. Wow, she knows me. He understands me. And if you're in a relationship right now with someone where this, this chemical reaction is going on and there's all these explosions going on inside of you emotionally, I'm talking straight. I'm talking straight to you. Run. Run. It's not going to help you finish well. Get out of it immediately. If you've got someone else in your life meeting needs that only your spouse should meet, it's time to get out of Dodge. Even if that means you need to change jobs, even if that means you need to move, if that means you need to get rid of some friends and find some new ones, Jesus said, it'd be better to gouge your own eye out if that's what it took to live this principle. Number four, I would suggest you list the consequences of a sexual sin. You ever do that? You ever just sit down and either in your mind or on paper, which I've done many times, literally, and sometimes I'll come up with pages of consequences if I were to have a sexual moral fall. I asked Debbie once, I said, "Hun, would, 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 you, would you leave me if I had an affair? She said, you, you don't leave a dead man. <laughs> I got the message. <laughs> you don't divorce a dead man. List the consequences. I, I did this once and I filled pages in this particular exercise. Devastate my wife. Absolutely disillusion my two children. They'd be crushed. They'd be, they'd be heartbroken. Hundreds, indeed thousands of people in the capital district just start naming people. Their whole view of the church and of God would be absolutely derailed. Every time a person falls, even if you're not a leader, it sets in motion a ripple effect of devastation. Think about that sometimes. And many times, that has been a powerful deterrent in my own life, just to think about all the pain that would create. And number five, just love your spouse. Here's what I mean by that. Don't just say I love you as you give a peck on the cheek. Learn to express that love in meaningful ways that your spouse really understands. Now, some of you are wondering, well, pastor, how does this church feel about impure people? How does this church feel about people 
who have already blown this? How does this church feel about people who aren't perfect? Does this per- church accept people who aren't perfect? Well, they still let me come in the doors, I'll tell you that right now. I'm pretty happy about that. Can I tell you something about this church? I hope you all understand. This church is not a hosp- it's not a sanctuary for saints so much as it's a hospital for sinners. One thing I love about Grace Fellowship is it's got a whole bunch of people who are in process. No perfect people allowed here. But I hope you're listening. I hope I still got your ears. But I'll tell you something else I know about this church. This is not a church that will idly sit by and let you flaunt an immoral lifestyle if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. We love you enough to accept you just as you are. We love you too much to allow you to comfortably stay just as you are. We will challenge you. You get to know us. Just like we're being challenged because we're like iron sharpening iron. You see, there's a big, big difference between struggling with a sin that you acknowledge is a sin and you're trying to get victory over, big difference between that and flaunting arrogantly in a moral lifestyle. Big difference between the two. And we're a place where God is healing a lot of people. We're a place filled with people who've had failures. We're a place where people by the hundreds and hundreds have found God's amazing grace and it's made all the difference in their lives. So if that's you, Hey, welcome, welcome. This is a place where you can find forgiveness and healing and freedom and victory to flourish and be the person God created you to be. Father, thank you for the challenge of this command. It cuts us to the core, Lord. There's no command probably more relevant and timely than this one. I just want to say a quick word, Lord, and ask that you would help all of those who right now, even this sermon was hard to listen to because it's too painful. It's too personal. It's too recent. It's too real. Oh, God, we need your grace. Lord, would you heal hearts that are broken? Would you mend dreams that are shattered? And would you give fresh vision for the future? May couples determine today, I, we will grow old together. We're going to make it through this. We're going to love you and love one another. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. And although we can't live up to these standards you set, I thank you that your grace catches us when we fall. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.